In reality, only 13% of our planet's population is born into the dollar, euro, Japanese yen, British pound, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, or Swiss franc. The other 87% are born into autocracy or considerably less trustworthy currencies. 4.3 billion people live under authoritarianism, and 1.2 billion people live under double or triple digit inflation. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We have got an incredible piece from Alex Gladstein today. Uh, check your financial privilege. It is brought to you so quickly. I think this was actually dropped today, if I'm not mistaken. Eight hours ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, this is brought to you so quickly by RD uh, at, at RD underscore BTC. Uh, you should definitely be following. Uh, him on Twitter, really fun account, and I added this to the list and just kind of made a comment that uh, 15,000 sats would knock this to the top of the vote on bitcoinaudible.com slash vote, and he literally hit me up immediately and just threw it 15,000 sats. So uh, thank you, good sir, for uh, donating to the show, helping to keep this show running, and this piece is worth every single sat. Um, it's such a good one. If you think Munger, like Charles Munger, uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Christine Lagarde are out of touch, you are going to love this piece. Um, but before we get into it, much thanks to our sponsors who also make this show happen. The Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It is an open source, easy to use hardware wallet. The way to keep the keys to your Bitcoin future safe and discount code GUY, G-U-Y, gets you 5% off. And of course, our other sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com, your auto-buy savings plan. It is literally the easiest and cheapest way to automatically get into Bitcoin on a regular basis. Consider it a financial privilege that you have access uh, and start saving in Bitcoin like yesterday. Uh, swanbitcoin.com slash GUY gets you $10 of free sats just to start your plan. With that, let's get into today's article, and it is titled, Check Your Financial Privilege, by Alex Gladstein. While those comfortable in the dollar bubble deride Bitcoin, the stories of three emerging market users demonstrate why it is so important. In the eyes of most Western elites, investors, journalists, and academics, Bitcoin rates anywhere from an annoyance to a disaster. Just a few days ago, American billionaire Charlie Munger described Bitcoin as, quote, disgusting and contrary to the interest of civilization. Warren Buffett, once the world's richest person, sat next to Munger in obvious agreement. He has said Bitcoin is a delusion and rat poison squared, and has warned that he is sorry about its rise, quote, because people get their hopes up that something like that is going to change their lives. Bill Gates, who also used to be the world's richest person, 
has said Bitcoin is a greater fool theory investment and that he would short it if he could. HBO host Bill Maher skewered Bitcoin in an extended segment on his show, saying that the new currency's promoters are money-hungry opportunists. A few weeks earlier, the New York Times ran a story that said Bitcoin will ruin the planet. Financial Times columnist Martin Wolf has long pegged it as, quote, ideal for criminals, terrorists, and money launderers. Prominent Ivy League economist Jeffrey Sachs has said that Bitcoin offers, quote, nothing of social value. While former International Monetary Fund chief and European Central Bank president Christine Lagarde has called it a tool for, quote, totally reprehensible money laundering activity. Over the past decade, these financial experts, reporters, and policymakers have continuously pounded the narrative that Bitcoin is risky, dangerous, bad for humans, and bad for the planet. They are wrong, and they are blinded mainly by their financial privilege. How Financial Privilege Blinds Dollar Users to Bitcoin's Importance The critics cited above are all wealthy citizens of advanced economies, where they benefit from liberal democracy, property rights, free speech, a functioning legal system, and relatively stable reserve currencies like the dollar or pound. In reality, only 13% of our planet's population is born into the dollar, euro, Japanese yen, British pound, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, or Swiss franc. The other 87% are born into autocracy or considerably less trustworthy currencies. 4.3 billion people live under authoritarianism, and 1.2 billion people live under double or triple-digit inflation. Critics in the dollar bubble miss the bigger global picture, that anyone with access to the internet can now participate in Bitcoin, a new money system with equal rules for all participants, running on a network that does not censor or discriminate, used by individuals who do not need to show a passport or an ID, and held by citizens in a way that is hard to confiscate and impossible to debase. While Western headlines focus on Coinbase going public, Tesla buying billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, and tech bros getting fabulously rich, there is a quiet revolution happening worldwide. Until now, Governments and corporations have controlled the rules of money. That is changing. To learn more, the author spoke to Bitcoin users in Sudan, Nigeria, and Ethiopia, three countries with a combined population of 366 million, well in excess of the number of individuals living in the United States. The three speak for millions whose lived experience is much closer to that of the average person on this planet. Gates, Munger, and Buffett may not have recently dealt with conflict and violence, black markets, relentless inflation, political repression, and rampant corruption in their daily routine, but most do. And yet, these Bitcoiners are more hopeful for the future than the doomers listed above. For them, Bitcoin is a protest, a lifeline, and a way out. Here are their stories. Bitcoin in Nigeria Iri Adernikan is a Nigerian entrepreneur. 
She is a front-end developer and user interface designer from Lagos and is the co-founder, COO, and vice president of engineering at BuyCoins, a cryptocurrency exchange that went through Y Combinator in 2018 and is now one of the most popular places to buy Bitcoin in West Africa. She is a prolific writer, speaker, organizer, and activist, and one of the founding members of the Feminist Coalition, a group that champions equality for women in Nigerian society. Adernikin talked about Nigeria as a melting pot, like the U.S. of Africa. Three big ethnic groups dominate the country, but the population is split into hundreds of different tribes. This is a strength, but also a challenge, as it is hard to bring so many different people together. The country is governed through a predominantly Muslim North and a predominantly Christian South, and the national leadership rotates between these constituencies. Nigeria has the largest economy in Africa and the largest population, with more than 200 million citizens. But much of the wealth is tied to the export of oil. Like in many rentier states, there is massive corruption and inequality. While the fabulously rich jet set around the world, six Nigerians are impoverished every minute. People who have wealth and power, Adernikin said, do not let it trickle down. This has resulted in a situation where in major urban areas such as Abuja and Lagos, there are countless lawyers, for instance, working in restaurants, toiling away in careers that are professionally beneath them, because there are not enough opportunities. Millions head to the big cities for jobs, only to come up empty-handed. As a result, Adernikin said the country struggles with unemployment, especially among the youth. 62% of the population is under 25 years old. Out of this crisis, however, are upsides. She credits Nigerians with being incredibly entrepreneurial. People do what they need to to get by, and having a side hustle, she said, is natural. Part of this need to hustle relates to the country's economic situation, where the official inflation rate now stands around 15% with food inflation even higher. In her personal experience, Adernikin has seen the Naira decline from 100 per dollar to 500 per dollar. People, she said, are quite aware that the elites are stealing from the citizens through debasement. It is expected. So much so that when one's family or friend gets a government job, she said, there is an assumption that they will provide for you and a circle of others. The money trickles down through nepotism, and the people at the top get fat. This is an example of the Cantillon effect in action, where those closest to the point of money creation benefit at the expense of the rest. Growing up, she saw people try to keep their money in dollars, or send it abroad, or buy real estate. This was how Nigerians could protect the fruits of their time and energy, but only a handful had these options. Now, Bitcoin is changing the game, allowing more people to save like never before. Anyone with internet access now has an escape from their unreliable and exploitative national monetary system. Adernikin got her start in Bitcoin with a Coinbase account in 2016. She and her friends initially thought, could we use this new technology to send money abroad? As it turned out, Bitcoin was easier and faster for sending money from Nigeria to the U.S. than traditional means. So, 
she decided to launch Bycoins. Paystack, the Nigerian tech giant, was just a few years old then, and she is grateful that it existed at the time, as it allowed Bycoins to reach customers and create an experience that otherwise would have been impossible. At first, the payment component of Bitcoin was what really attracted Adernikin, the idea that it could be easy instead of hard to send money from one place to another, skipping over national borders. This, she thought, is something Bitcoin can fix. Beyond the exchange itself, Bycoins also released an app called SendCash. At first, it helped people outside of Nigeria send money home. Perhaps a family member moved to the U.S. and they want to send dollars back. The recipient would normally need a domiciliary account in dollars, but Adernikin said those are difficult to open. Even then, going from dollars to Naira can be hard. They thought, could Bitcoin help streamline the process? With Send Cash, users in the U.S. send Bitcoin to the app and it deposits as Naira a few minutes later in any Nigerian bank account. Today, the app also sends Naira to the U.S. or Ghana, all using Bitcoin as a payment rail. Adernigan said that around 45% of the Nigerian population has internet access. So is her mission worth it if a majority of Nigerians still cannot even access Bitcoin? She said this is a dilemma she often ponders. There are countless IDPs, internally displaced persons, across Nigeria who cannot accept cryptocurrency because they do not have a smartphone. In the end, she said, the work and mission is worth it, because even though there are many who do not have a feature phone or a smartphone, there are millions who do, and those individuals are sharing access to smart apps with those who do not have them. As for the Gates and Buffets of the world, Adernikin said some of Bitcoin's critics may have valid points to debate around, for example, the environmental impact, but she takes issue with Western elites saying there is no upside or that it is a Ponzi scheme, or that it is just for fun. They do not understand, she said, how important Bitcoin is for those who cannot get dollars. For billions, they are trapped in a flawed currency that does not fulfill the purpose of what currency is supposed to do. For many in Nigeria and beyond, Bitcoin is providing another option and solving real problems. Is it just helping the rich? Adernikin laughed and said, this is not the case at all. It is providing employment. It is helping people convert their Naira to other currencies. It is enabling commerce where it was not previously possible. With the feminist coalition, it helped people overcome financial repression and the freezing of activist bank accounts. This is not, she said, just a case of people sitting around watching the price. Moving forward, Adernikin thinks more education is essential. Nigerians are still very misinformed about Bitcoin. The main reason they know about it, she said, is because the price keeps going up, and many do not see past that. Scams are a huge obstacle. Finally, though, she said, people are beginning to understand. They know Bitcoin is volatile, but they see that it goes up and to the right over time, instead of down and to the right, like the Naira. She also wants to focus on building bridges and ramps between the Naira and cryptocurrencies. Bycoins works with a Naira stablecoin, the NGNT, which she said can also be helpful to people without traditional bank accounts. And building on and off ramps matters. 
because the Nigerian government has buy coins and other exchanges in its crosshairs. Recently, the regime pronounced Bitcoin as not legal tender and said banks should not hold or treat it as such. They later clarified that individuals could still trade, but have pressured regulated financial institutions to stay away. Bycoins has been struggling to hold Naira because banks do not want to work with it. But now, Adernikin said, it has shifted to a peer-to-peer -peer solution. When users need to go in and out of Naira, depositors and withdrawals are matched in a marketplace. Adernikin does not actually think it is possible to effectively ban Bitcoin. The most the government can do, perhaps, is what it has already done, forcing institutions to stay away. But it cannot stop individuals from using hardware wallets or conducting peer-to-peer -peer activity in a place like Nigeria. No one, she said, can stop me. It is like saying it could ban Facebook, she said. It could shut down the internet, but that would have disastrous consequences for the whole nation. What the government should be doing instead, she said, is trying to understand Bitcoin and working with exchanges to allow Nigerians to connect to the world around them. Adernikin does not think the government should have an adversarial attitude. In fact, she believes Bitcoin can help it. Maybe it would even be a good thing if the Nigerian government figured out Bitcoin before other nations. But she said for the moment, it is not even close to understanding how Bitcoin works. When asked if it is using blockchain surveillance or spying on individual transactions, she laughed. It does not have the abilities or know-how yet, she said. As for the future, Adernikin is hopeful because she has seen Bitcoin's potential. She watched it shine in the context of human rights and activism. Last October, in the middle of nationwide protests against SARS, a notorious special police unit that was terrorizing citizens across the country, the feminist coalition began accepting donations via Flutterwave, a fintech product. This started off well enough, but then the regime started cracking down. Its bank accounts were shuttered. Bitcoin was the only option left. There was no other way to receive, store, and spend money. For Adernikin and her co-founders, this was an eye-opening moment. They ended up setting up a BTC Pay server to process gifts from around the world in a way that avoided address reuse and protected donor privacy. Celebrities, including Jack Dorsey, shared the link, and they raised more than seven Bitcoin. It was a great learning experience, she said, as many young people learned about Bitcoin in this moment as a tool for activism. The experience renewed and strengthened her beliefs in products she is building at Bycoins. People saw that Bitcoin was cool and that the government could not stop it. Because of this, Adernikin thinks that one day, Bitcoin will be talked about in the same way, with the same importance, as radio, the TV, and the internet. Asked if she is worried about a world where the government can no longer control the money, she said no. She is hopeful. Just printing more money, she said, has its downsides. Taking that option away is not necessarily a bad thing. Bitcoin in Sudan Mo, also known as Sudan Hoddle, is a Sudanese doctor. He currently lives abroad in Europe, practicing medicine to support his family back home. Mo sees his country with brutally clear eyes. He described the capital of Khartoum as a crowded, diverse megacity filled with pockets of extravagant wealth surrounded by an enormous belt of poverty. It is a city of contradictions, he said. 
where palatial residences sit next to utter destitution. Mo has worked in Darfur, where he described the lack of development as simply stunning. There is no educational or health infrastructure. During his time there, he was one of three or four doctors treating hundreds of thousands of people. There was a total lack of primary care, and there were no pediatric hospitals. He was treating women who suffered from fistula. The national ruling class, he said, did not invest in these places. Warlords ultimately filled the power vacuum, with the youth choosing violence instead of school as a way to get ahead. Mo told a tortured history of his country. Sudan, he said, had been living through a vicious cycle of military coups and authoritarian rule ever since gaining its independence from the British Empire and losing its fragile first democracy. Islam, Mo said, did not come to Sudan by violence, but through traitors and Sufis. He said his Muslim ancestors historically had a peaceful interpretation of their religion. But in the 1980s, the rise of Saudi Arabia's oil wealth led to the export of the extremist and militant ideology of Wahhabism to many places around the world, including Sudan. Wahhabism was foreign to Sudan's culture, but was forced into the country's political structure. By 1983, military governments had allied themselves with the Muslim Brotherhood and imposed Sharia law, alienating the predominantly Christian and animist South. A democratic revolution in 1985 was short-lived, as Islamists led by Omar al-Bashir staged another coup in 1989, paving the way for three decades of his rule. Society was militarized, and the intelligentsia were purged. Now, if one spoke out against the regime, Mo said, they were not just speaking out against them, they were speaking out against Islam. They were against God himself. This gave Bashir an excuse for his brutality and new jihads against ethnic minorities. Since colonial times, minorities in South Sudan and Darfur had resisted authority from strongmen in faraway Khartoum. The seeds of this tension were planted in the 1950s when these populations fell under post-colonial Arab rule. Over time, these minority groups rebelled, only to be violently subjugated. The bloodshed peaked in Darfur in the early 2000s when Bashir committed genocide, using the Janjaweed militias to murder hundreds of thousands and displace millions of people. This triggered the U.S. and E.U. to increase sanctions against Sudan, cutting it off more deeply from the outside world. Mo thinks it is important to share Sudan's economic history, often overshadowed by the political story. In addition to the extreme inequality on display in Khartoum, there is a bigger picture of low-income workers trying to catch up to high inflation, while those closer to the regime manage to do well. Infrastructure decayed and the average person suffered while Bashir and his cronies loaded up on weapons, real estate, and foreign assets. Modern Sudan is another vivid and tragic example of the Cantillon effect. It was not always like this. Mo said that under the gold standard, three Sudanese pounds once bought a dollar. There was a middle class, and Khartoum was known as the London of North Africa. But in 1960, the Sudanese central bank took over and devalued the currency, the first instance of what would happen many times over the coming decades. 
When Bashir seized power in 1989, he installed a regime of economic terrorism. To instill fear in the population, he chose to make an example of a young man named Majdi Mahajub, who was a single child living at home looking after his elderly parents. A Christian minority in a community of traders, Majdi had possession of a few thousand U.S. dollars in his home, the result of many years of family commerce. Bashir created a new special economic division, a sort of secret police that would go home to home searching for foreign currency or gold. When the jackbooted thugs came to Majdi's house, they found his savings and arrested him. After a show trial, he was hanged, sending a message to the population. If anyone tries to use anything but the Sudanese currency through our banking system, if anyone tries to own their own money, they will get the death sentence. Even today, according to Mo, many Sudanese are fearful of using dollars or storing money at home. At the same time, Bashir launched a tribute system to finance his activities. On top of what was taken through traditional taxation and seniorage, citizens had to pay a portion of their income to help the martyrs of their dictators' wars. The secret monetary police would spy on individuals, freeze bank accounts, confiscate assets, and impose made-up fees on merchants. No reasonable suspicion was required. Mo calls it a system of national extortion. As far as the currency itself, Mo recalled several times in his life when the system was overhauled. In the late 1980s, his family was living abroad in Saudi Arabia, and when they visited home, a quarter of a Sudanese pound could buy a sandwich or a tasty snack on the street. But after 1992, when Bashir changed the haram and colonial pound for the Islamic dinar, these quarter pounds became worthless. The mid-1990s saw massive inflation, with the, quote, official rate of the dinar going from around 400 per dollar to more than 2,000. Many years later, in 2007, Bashir decided to ditch the Islamic facade and switch back to the pound. Citizens had a small window to redeem dinars for the new currency, after which they were no longer legal tender, forcing citizens to surrender their savings or watch it disappear. Today, after a series of devaluations and constant inflation, a Sudanese pound will officially obtain around $0.0025. According to Mo, inflation is 340%. While the average citizen watched as their wages stagnated and living costs rose, Bashir and his cronies accumulated billions and saved them in foreign currencies, locked away in Swiss bank accounts. Today, the new Sudanese government is struggling to regain all that was looted and lost in the past 30 years. In the spring of 2019, in a stunning example of people power, the Sudanese population finally pushed out Bashir. Since then, a fragile reform government has been in place where military leaders of the old regime share power with a technocratic civilian government. People were initially optimistic about the change, Mo said but the reality is not meeting their expectations. He says the IMF has a deal to help give $5 per month to Sudanese families, and in a country where some only make a dollar a day, this seemed significant. The problem is, the families are paid not in dollars, but in pounds, so the value disappears after a few months. The sanctions levied on the Bashir regime are now gone, 
but most fintech products and payment apps are still not available for Sudanese, as corporations shy away due to risk management. It is clear that in some places a political revolution is not enough. Toppling a tyrant like Bashir is a historical and incredible achievement, but people are still suffering. So some, like Mo, are turning to Bitcoin. In 2015, Mo first heard about this mysterious internet money, as he put it, on YouTube. He spent countless hours watching Andreas Antonopoulos' videos and read through the internet of money, which helped him understand the why behind the new currency. He started to use it while working abroad, exchanging euros for Bitcoin over PayPal on local Bitcoins. He kept things small and mainly to himself, but in 2017 he started talking to family and friends. He told them, this is going to be a part of our future. Many of them are now saving in Bitcoin. As of today, Mo estimates that 13 million of Sudan's 43 million people have internet access, and he thinks that in a few years, that number will top 20 million. There are more and more people coming online, and there are now smartphones even in remote regions like Darfur and the Nuba Mountains. People are plugging in everywhere. He said that the Sudanese who do already have smartphones have an extended responsibility to help others with their privilege. In his case, he has a large extended family that he supports. He is their Uncle Jim. Where there were once financial walls cutting off Sudan from the world, Bitcoin has made bridges. It is now easy for Mo in Europe to send money back to his friends and family. What once took days now takes minutes, and he does not have to trust any third parties or require his family to deal with thieves in government. Mo is beginning to see just how massive the Lightning Network will be for Sudan because most users will be in the micropayment space, sending transactions of $5 or $10, and will not be able to afford the increasingly high on-chain fees. If international exchanges can choose to service Sudan and enable Lightning withdrawals and deposits, he said that would be an enormous step forward for financial empowerment. As for the likes of Bill Gates and Buffett, Mo said they might understand the technology behind Bitcoin, but they will never be happy about it because it is coming to seize a place on the global stage that they used to have just for themselves. In direct contradiction to billionaire claims that Bitcoin is worthless and has no social value, Mo knows many Sudanese who rely on it as a lifeline. Maybe, Mo said, the critics just cannot see past their financial privilege. For Mo personally, Bitcoin has been transformative. He started a podcast in Arabic for Sudanese youth to talk about Bitcoin, money, freedom, and the future of their country. Fifteen years ago, he could not have imagined being this optimistic. One of the darkest moments in his life was in 2013, after a peaceful political uprising was completely crushed. Mo left all social media. He could not bear to look at the bloody images and videos streaming from the violence. But now, with twin political and economic transformations, he sees the light at the end of the tunnel. When people say Bitcoin is hope, he says that he agrees. Bitcoin in Ethiopia Cal Casa is an Ethiopian businessman. In a country of close to 120 million people, more than 70% of the population has no access to a bank account. This is a place, he said, where there are still communities that use salt for money. 
in the remote northeast Afar region, dotted with volcanoes, rifts, and deserts, the indigenous people mine salt, as they have for generations, and trek for days to barter it in markets for the goods they need. It is their store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. The word amol, amharic for salt, is even used today in Ethiopia as the name of a mobile banking app. According to Cal, 70% of Ethiopians still live in rural areas. Outside of the capital of Addis Ababa, home to 5 million, very few have bank accounts or smartphones. In total, no more than 25 million Ethiopians are connected. To make matters worse, Ethiopia does not have open capital markets. Individuals cannot freely exchange their national currency, the burr, with dollars and vice versa. Sadly, Casa said, the country is still under the influence of militant Marxism and economic centralization. Today, there is a bank rate that the National Bank of Ethiopia enforces at 40 burr per dollar, and then a black market rate of 55 burr per dollar. Inflation is officially reported at around 20%. Casa is not sure what the exact rate is, but said that Ethiopians traditionally buy a chicken or sheep or lamb for Easter, and these prices go up steadily every year. When he arrived in Ethiopia in 2013 to start a consulting job, one lamb went for around 1,500 burr. Today it can go for 5,000 or even 7,000 burr. Government wages do grow, Casa said, but not on par with inflation. He estimated salaries in urban areas have perhaps doubled over the past decade, but goods have gone up by three to five times. Since inflation is so high and such a constant phenomenon, the upper classes use the dollar as their unit of account. But outside of the cities, people still account with and their living standards fall with the burr. In rural areas, people use cattle or sheep to store value. If they can, they obtain gold, which is rare and still considered very precious. Dollars are officially illegal. The government is afraid that people will dump the burr for dollars, pushing the price of the burr towards zero. But the government operates a double standard, wanting to retain as many dollars as it can for its own purposes. If, for example, one runs a tourist service, they are allowed to take payments into a dollar account, which they can use to pay for imported goods for up to around two months. But if they do not use those dollars within that window, the government simply swaps the dollars out for burr at the official rate, which, of course, means they get the fake price of 40 burr for $1 and not the real market rate of 55. Casa's brother was arrested and imprisoned once simply because he had $20 in his pocket. In Ethiopia, people are jailed for the crime of using better currency. Starting in 2018, Ethiopia underwent a series of reforms under a young new leader who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for efforts to end hostilities with neighboring Eritrea. The shifts appeared to open up political space and move the country toward liberalism after more than 25 years of a police state. Three years later, however, repression, ethnic tensions, and armed conflict have caused a democratic backslide. This uncertainty has caused major capital flight. On top of that, Ethiopia imports more than it exports. Oil, medical goods, and cars, for example, are all brought in from other countries. In this weak environment, Ethiopians are forced to buy government bonds, which, as Casa dryly noted, have negative real interest rates. They are, as he put it, donations to the state.
Casa was born in Ethiopia, but left as a young child growing up in California. He moved back at the end of 2013 as a senior associate for Grant Thornton, working on privatization on the buy and sell sides. He lived there until last summer when the government shut off the internet. Casa's phone could still send SMS messages and make calls, but there was no data. The regime justified this as a defense against rebellions, but especially during the pandemic lockdown, this got old very quickly. So last summer, wearing just a backpack, he got on a plane and headed back to the U.S. Casa first heard about Bitcoin in 2013 when his roommate was mining it at Chapman University. But the idea did not click for him. He spent years thinking Bitcoin was just some kind of alternative and speculative investment. He said his penny drop moment actually came when he was at the airport in Addis last summer. As he was boarding the plane, he stood and wondered, if I had my wealth stored in gold or cattle, how could I take it across a border? Today, Casa has created telegram groups where he pays freelancers, graphic designers, and translators based in Ethiopia with Bitcoin. In America, he said, most people treat Bitcoin as an investment or as a savings account. But he is using it as a medium of exchange and payment, too. It is easier and cheaper, and now a part of his life. Casa is focused on the Lightning Network and uses it to pay his contacts in Ethiopia. He helps them set up the open-source free Blue Wallet and pays them directly with Lightning. He's amazed at how easy it is and how it transmits hard value instantly halfway across the world. On the other end, his contacts use Blue Wallet as their savings accounts, and they exchange locally into Burr when they need to in peer-to-peer -peer markets. This is, he said, hugely preferable to Western Union and Burr-denominated accounts, where, for example, on a recent payment, Casa had to pay $13 to send $100. When Casa pays his colleagues, he pays them the full amount, rather than paying through government exchange rate, where authorities steal a portion. His contacts are their own banks, and no one can debase or remotely confiscate their funds. This, Casa said, is a revolution. Casa does have concerns and fears about Bitcoin. For example, the Ethiopian government is hyper-concerned about satellite internet. If citizens are caught with satellite equipment, for example, they can go to prison. In this context, he's worried about the safety of people running their own Bitcoin nodes. He also thinks that many people may end up using custodial services, since as of right now, many cannot even tell the difference between Bitcoin and other coins, and are far away from understanding the difference between custodial and non-custodial services. He is also cautious about all the new cheap smartphones flooding in from ZTE and Huawei, all from China. He's worried about people using these phones for Bitcoin hot wallets, as he does not think they are safe. In addition, because the phone networks are not reliable, people still carry cash in cities, even if they have smartphones, as sometimes the service goes out. Casa said the biggest obstacle to Bitcoin adoption in Ethiopia might be the false promise of alternative cryptocurrencies. In particular, he has identified Cardano as a threat. In a recent video, the currency's creator spoke about working with the Ethiopian regime to incorporate 5 million students onto the Cardano blockchain and boast that they could be tracked with metadata throughout their life and career. Our vision goals, he said, are directly in line with the goals of the Ethiopian government. In contrast, Casa is glad that Bitcoin's goals are not in line with the aims of the thieves and bureaucrats who run his country. 
he's worried that many may fall prey to schemes like Cardano. As for Gates and Buffett, Casa actually did get a chance to go to the Berkshire Hathaway event in Lincoln, Nebraska a few years ago. It was very powerful, he said, to see 40,000 people coming together as part of a community. But the event was very inward-looking, which explains how Buffett and friends cannot see just how corrupt the world is around them. They do not see the water that they swim in and are seemingly blind to the trillions of dollars of money laundered each year through the banking system. For them to ignore the harms that the dollar system has caused on the developing world, Casa said, and instead focus on the flaws of Bitcoin, is naive and self-serving. He is glad that these investors are dinosaurs. They are not the future. In contrast, 75% of the population of Ethiopia is under the age of 27. Once they start using Bitcoin, Casa thinks they will spread the technology quickly to friends and family. Adoption will not take decades, but years. When he moved back to Ethiopia in 2013, there were about 5 million people online. Now, there are about 25 million. In the next five years, he expects a majority of the population will be connected, and for Bitcoin to follow. As far as priorities, Casa thinks spreading education is most important. He's currently working on translating the little Bitcoin book into Amharic. As far as he knows, there is no other Bitcoin content translated as of yet into Ethiopia's three major languages. When asked if he is worried about the government cracking down on Bitcoin, he said that it will be hard to get in the middle of a hard-working Ethiopian and a better life. The population is young, agile, creative, and adapting. It will not be stopped. People, he said, are sick of poverty and earning money only to see it depreciate. Today, Ethiopians are at war with each other. We are fighting ourselves, Casa said. If we are willing to kill each other to solve our problems, we will definitely be willing to try Bitcoin as an alternative. And that, he thinks, will be a peaceful revolution. After reading the stories of Adernican, Mo, and Casa, and witnessing how Bitcoin is so valuable to people outside of the dollar bubble, compare this with what Munger, Buffett, Lagarde, Sachs, and others say about Bitcoin, that it is something with no social value, that it will just get people's hopes up, only to let them down. Disgusting. Rat poison. I would short it. Totally reprehensible. For most people, it is the government that lets people down. It is the government that is reprehensible. Liberation technologies should be invested in, not shorted. And for those comfortable in the dollar bubble, it's time to check your financial privilege. Mike Drop by Alex Gladstein. All right, uh, let's uh, hit our sponsor really quick. Um, and I'm a little bit low on time, but I still want to try to get in a short guy's take on this one because it's just that awesome. Bitcoin is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Yes, it's an investment, but it is investing in a tool of liberation, not a speculative asset to be constantly bought and sold cheaply. This is why I tell people to simply save. And this is why I direct people to Swan Bitcoin. You literally can't sell on Swan Bitcoin. You just go there to buy. You go there to invest in a tool that is going to help liberate the world. Maybe that sounds trite, 
but I believe it. Bitcoin is one of the greatest tools we have ever had, the greatest opportunity for liberty in the modern age. The best way to help realize that is to simply save automatically, to make Bitcoin your standard. SwanBitcoin.com is a wonderful place to buy Bitcoin, simply put. And you can do it automatically. They've got low fees, a lot of other great things that makes them a great service. But simply put, they are no nonsense. Go to Swan and buy Bitcoin. That's what they do. And like I always say, don't forget to add slash guy on the end of that URL and you get $10 free just for signing up. If this doesn't help shine light on exactly how horrible the Cantillon effect is and exactly what it does to a society, it is the greatest source of wealth confiscation in the world right now. And you think about it, it's a circular thing too. Like the reason these regimes have the corrupt power that they do is because they have the military and policing power to go around and enforce these legal tender laws, these ridiculous, the lying exchange rates and the, the lying you know, inflation numbers and uh, enforce uh, on banks and institutions what people can actually use, what they can swap for to confiscate all of these funds. The control over money is the ability to divert economic resources to the enforcement of your control over money. I take the example of um, Adernican and how she talked about, there's a really great quote that just kind of struck me that I'd never really thought about, but it says that the, the situation is so bad that when one's family or friend gets a government job, there's an assumption that they will provide for you and a circle of others. The only reason the value of that government job is so high is because they are the ones benefiting from the, the amount of value that's sucked out of the rest of the economy. Without control over the money, they wouldn't be able to pay the enforcers. They wouldn't be able to pay the people that go into the government, the cushy government jobs that then reinforces the need of everybody to be at the teat of the government, to actually... Uh, be a part of the regime, their desire to be a part of the thing, and help prop it up. Like, it becomes circular. The people who are actually destitute and who are being punished the worst end up wanting so desperately to be a part of the system because the benefit is so great to, to be inside the circle, to be inside the bubble of uh, monetary privilege. But that situation is just really crazy. I never quite thought about it. And it makes, it makes perfect sense, though, when, especially if like, that's considered an assumption that there's going to be horrible debasement, that uh, people are going to be taxed, that, um, that basically nothing is reliable, that you know, wages are lagging, and all of these things, that it would be seen as the obligation of your friend or your family member who has a government job to help everybody out. And we even see the difference in our own country. Like even in the dollar bubble, even in the United States, the retirement plans, the salaries, the um, healthcare benefits, all of these things that like Congress and politicians and government jobs get aren't, are not even close to what you end up getting stuck with in the private sector. It's certainly not as exaggerated in a situation as as a situation like mentioned in the article, but it, you're seeing the same effect just to a just to a uh, a smaller degree because 
What does the dollar get? The dollar gets the benefit of pushing this problem onto the entire rest of the world by propping up demand for the dollar by, if you haven't, if you haven't listened to Alex Gladstein's other piece or read his other piece on the hidden costs of the petrodollar, this is all about propping up dictators. And this, our intelligence agencies have been muddling and overthrowing regimes and screwing with these governments and countries all over the Middle East. All the oil nations have been, I mean, look at the, God, it's so awful. It's so awful. The, the secondary and the, the third level consequences of the petrodollar system, what it is able, enabled um, in corruption and horrible regimes uh, the the thing that he actually mentioned that uh, rentier states um, uh, that Nigeria is is a rentier state, and what this is referring to is when essentially the the government the regime gets so much uh, foreign foreign revenue from their oil from the outside world that the government itself becomes completely unaccountable to their citizens and essentially autocratic. And so these oil, uh, these oil resources actually become a huge negative for the actual people of the country. So even though the country itself is incredibly rich in this resource, it only ends up helping the government. And what's funny is the more the government does that, the more they use their position and, uh, you know, will save their own freaking wealth in dollars and disallow it or make it illegal for the normal citizens to do that so that they can print their own currency away and uh, get foreign currency, the more they actually do that and uh, be friendly and trade in dollars with the U.S. government or OPEC or whatever, the better it is for the U.S. political position. We have been fighting for exactly those sorts of regimes for decades. You wonder why... So much of the world hates the United States. This is why, is because if we can install a dictator into a country and they absolutely rob the country blind, but sell all of their oil for dollars and sell to the United States, we don't care. That's great for the U.S. And so the U.S. government is all over it. That's what they've been doing for since the 80s. And people are worried about Bitcoin's energy consumption. This is the energy consumption. This is the life consumption of the petrodollar system. Ignore pollution. Who cares about that? We're talking about destitution. We're talking about killing, uh, actually killing millions of people and uh, installing authoritarian regimes and keeping them propped up for decades, ruining healthy countries and turning them into despotic authoritarian regimes. It's such a mess. It's such an utter mess. And it's crazy that... It's funny that the, the, the internet has actually been the first... Has been really the greatest push toward... I guess you could say democratizing, but more... Opening up the communication channels and giving people options to route around so much of this trouble um, and the controls themselves... But the ability for them still to enforce it, the ability for them still to essentially print in order to get themselves the enforcement power that can confiscate or control enough of the capital in order to keep the Ponzi scheme running, in order to keep the fraud alive, 
if you can break that loop, you have changed the game everywhere. You know, the fact that somebody with just an internet connection could actually use a financial service in the U.S. and nobody would even know, and there's no explicit border, there's no financial authority involved, even if it's just something as simple as the blue wallet, just the sheer fact that they can connect to it and use a financial service, even, even a custodial one, is an absolute game changer. And as Lightning Network is built out as a payment rail, as a massive network on top of Bitcoin, it's, it's going to be absolutely huge. And I think it's also a great reason why we need to be so focused on privacy. These are our enemies. These, the governments like these, this situation, this is what needs to be fixed. We need to rip money out of the hands of these horrific institutions. They need to be bled dry so that people can actually prosper. Otherwise, there is no hope. And I gotta admit, I damn near got teared up a couple of times in this article when like, they were just talking about these, these individual cases of being optimistic, of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, that something could actually bring people out of this, that it could just happen at the base. It could, it could start at the lowest level, and from the ground up, it can start to literally just eat the foundation of that monetary and political control that causes so much poverty and pain across the world. That we could just start, we could rug pull the very institutions and the power they have that prevent the poorest of people from being able to build their way out of destitution. That is the problem here, and so many people fail to realize it. We do not have a shortage of food. We do not have a shortage of machines. We do not have a shortage of smartphones. It's not because the U.S. people in the U.S. are throwing away 20% of what they eat that is the reason that people in Africa or uh, Ethiopia are starving. We have a shortage of freedom. We have a shortage of people with the freedom and the ability to work and save for themselves to build the capital necessary to actually sustain an economy and grow themselves out of poverty. We have a shortage of political stability. We have a shortage of sovereignty around the world. And separating money from state is the first step to solving that in a way that has never been possible before, and that is unbelievably revolutionary. And I love all of their responses to the, the Buffett and Munger and uh, Bill Gates uh, you know, comments and stuff. It's like, what the hell do you know? You are the ones, you are the very people benefiting from this. This is like hearing the Ethiopian government talking about how there's no social use case for Bitcoin. It's like, bitch, there's no social use case for you. You are a parasite that people put up with because they don't know how to end you. That is why you exist. And Bitcoin is going to slowly tear down all of the borders. It is going to make the authority part of money vanish. And the problem of trying to enforce the taxation is going to get exponentially more and more difficult. And as the, in the fact that these, it, particularly these countries in these situations are incredibly 
more young, have a majority of a youth population in the country is a huge, huge thing because they are growing up at a time when technology is becoming ubiquitous and smartphones actually are becoming cheap enough to, uh, to spread to even the poorest nations on earth. The cell phone and internet connectivity charts look stacked. They are absolutely out of this world. The growth in the last five to 10 years in those metrics is unbelievable. And at some point, the governments aren't going to stop, aren't going to be able to stop it, and there's going to be nothing they can do. And even better, with the ability to actually fund decentralized infrastructure with decentralized money, that's going to take away one of the greatest areas of control for controlling the very internet infrastructure itself. And there's, there's always a risk. There's always a risk, too. You know, the, the Chinese, the Huawei um, smartphones and stuff, um, I, I find it interesting that uh, I think it was Casa um, or Mo, God, I, don't, I don't remember which one it was, um, uh, talking about how uh, they don't trust it. Um, and, you know, technology can be, I, I think fundamentally technology is a force of liberation. But it's clear that it also, because it gives power to everyone, it can also give power to the powerful. And the powerful are also most likely to basically find themselves with the use and the ability to utilize and take these technologies as a tool for control first. I kind of see it as this constant two steps forward, one step back sort of thing. And basically plugging everybody into a centralized system. Oh God, the Cardano thing. I'd forgotten about that. Um, Jesus, it's so awful. Amen to Casa. That is nothing. Bitcoin does not align with that. Bitcoin has nothing to do with that. Bitcoin is never going to partner with a government for any reason. It cannot, it will not, and anybody who perceives themselves as an influencer or a leader in Bitcoin who does so should be canceled. They should expect to be trace mayored. And if it takes more than 48 hours, I'm going to be disappointed with the Cyber Hornets. Partnering, partnering with the Ethiopian government to put 5 million students on the blockchain so that all of their financial and career life, all of their meta metadata can be lumped together and tracked for their entire life. What kind of hell is Hoskinson, Hoskinson trying to build? What a freaking moron. And you know, I think this is probably the fight. This is probably what will happen. You know, as we get into the next phase of this thing where it's attempting to be co-opted, I think the largest threat will be the very narrative uh, against the tool that makes Bitcoin secure and independent, proof of work. It will be an environmentalist argument that the very proof of work is the reason it's independent. It is the reason there is a strict, unforgeable costliness to the trust in the network. You can trust it because there is no way to go backward in history that doesn't require an enormous cost. Proof of work is the underlying foundation for why Bitcoin is trustless. Governments will be desperate to make proof of stake happen. And this is what we could see. We could see them partnering with Cardano or ETH 2.0 or whatever the hell it is, because 
oh, it's so much better on the environment, i.e. lets us keep our horrible, shit, corrupt, polluting regime, and quote, the people through the proof of stake that the government can print and get the majority of in a handful of minutes, or maybe they just tap Charles on the back with the big wrench, that will be, that will be how the people decide the monetary policy. And, you know, we'll just need more inflation. We'll need, uh, we'll need the government to have special staking powers for the good of society. So this will be, this will be the next block size war, I think. Um, and, you know, this will be how CBDCs roll out and are marketed. Think about it. They'll have a direct relationship. They will be in direct competition with Bitcoin soon, even on the same platforms. Have you ever heard of a government talking good of their competition? It's going to be harder. It's going to be a lot harder. The pressure is going to be immense. And we have to be up for it. And we have to not get distracted with the reasons that we are doing this. We have two paths. With the increasing technology and the integration of all of these tools into our daily lives, into our pockets, into our glasses, into every screen that is sitting in every room, as we are fully integrated into these systems, we have the choice of cryptography and independence, or we have the choice of central control and top-down dictates that can actually get into micro-behaviors in what we do and record every single thing that we say, do, and think. But we actually have a choice. We actually have a choice. And we have tools that can prevent this. But it requires patience. It requires thinking of this like a cryptographic system that must be secure against even these adversaries. If we are not considering these as our adversaries, then we are failing. And it requires us to stay focused on the goal, on censorship resistance, on stateless money, and on independence, no matter the narrative, no matter how much we are demeaned or ridiculed, no matter how much guilt the petrodollar apologists try to levy against us, we are not sorry and you can kiss our collective ass. When you hear that nonsense, think about these stories and what the mission is. Remember that this is about the ultimate social good. Proof of work is infinitely superior than the horrific shit system of money we have today. There is no amount of energy that it could ever use that would not be worth separating money from state. Okay. That'll do us. Um, uh, thank you uh, for listening. This is such a good... Alex Gladstein's freaking killing it right now. Um, uh, I even have like two, I think, in the lineup. Um, I'm probably just going to do a week of Gladstein. Um, uh, in fact, I really have kind of failed at not getting him on the show. I think I mentioned this a number of times now. Uh, so, uh, I might be reaching out to him soon. Don't forget to subscribe. So much great stuff to come. And, uh, last thank you to RD, uh, RD underscore BTC for donating and pushing this to the top of the list. Um, this was just a great read. Um, and, uh, you know, much love. 15,000 sats is me being 15,000 sats freer. And make sure that I can keep doing this and sharing this with you guys. Um, and uh, much love to uh, my other patrons, everybody who voted. And, uh, of course, to the Bitbox O2, our sponsor. 
Uh, excellent little hardware wallet. I uh, had a couple people who've mentioned recently that they've been really enjoying it. That's awesome. If you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. Um, and of course, Swan Bitcoin, how I stack Bitcoin automatically every day and uh, well, uh, technically every week. And um, the easiest way for you to do the same, uh, use slash guy at the end of the URL. And you get my referral link and it gets you $10 free. Um, thank you guys so much. I am out. Thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.